The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. Please turn to the book of Psalms, the third Psalm, Psalm 3. You can tell that those, uh, if you look at the title of this sermon, The God Who Lifts My Head in Trouble, you see that those two hymns we just sang have a lot to do with that, trusting in the sovereign purposes of God, knowing that the Lord is with us in our journey in life. Those are themes that are very, very much throughout the Psalms. And we come this evening in this short series, picking some various select psalms over these weeks. Uh, We're looking at Psalm 3. Let us give our heed to God's word. A psalm of David when he fled from Absalom, his son. O Lord, how many are my foes. Many are rising against me. Many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. But you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory, and the lifter of my head. I cried aloud to the Lord, and he answered me from his holy hill. I lay down and slept. I woke again, for the Lord sustained me. I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God. For you strike all my enemies on the cheek. You break the teeth of the wicked. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing be on your people. May God add his blessing to the reading and hearing of his holy word. We come to Psalm 3, and if you're reading through the book of Psalms, you would obviously come to it pretty early on. And it's actually the first psalm we come to after what we would call the two-part introduction to the book of Psalms. Psalm 1 and 2 constitute the introduction to the book of Psalms. We're not going to spend a lot of time uh, on that, but Psalm 1, a psalm about the Word of God, and Psalm 2, about God's Messiah. And those themes are really preeminent in the book of Psalms, the Word of God and the Messiah of God. So after that introduction... We launch into Psalms 3 and following, and it's interesting that Psalms 3, 4, 5, 6, and 7 all have a lot to do about problems and troubles. We might call them Psalms of lament or Psalms of complaint, in a sense, complaint to God, which is a good thing to do. For example, if you look at Psalm 4, verse 2, O men, how long shall my honor be turned into shame? How long will you love vain words and seek after lies? Shows you what what David's going through with his circumstances. Or Psalm 5, Psalm 5, verses 4 and 5. For you are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. The boastful shall not stand before you. You hate all evildoers. And then 
Psalm 6, verses 2 and 3. Be gracious to me, O Lord, for I am languishing. Heal me, O Lord, for my bones are troubled. My soul also is greatly troubled. But you, O Lord, how long? And then verse chapter, Psalm 7, verse 1. O Lord, my God, in you do I take refuge. Save me from all my pursuers and deliver me. Lest, like a lion, they tear my soul apart, rending it to pieces with none to deliver. Just giving you a sense of these initial psalms. It's been said that the book of Psalm begins with lament and trouble and ends with praise. You might know that the last five psalms of the book of Psalms begin and end. Each of those last five psalms begin and end with the word hallelujah. Praise the Lord. We might say that this structure of the book of Psalms, you could say it compares to the Christian's pilgrim journey, that we begin our Christian life and experience in this life, in this veil of tears with brokenness all around us and in our own hearts and lives. But we end in the new heaven and the new earth, rejoicing in the presence of our God with all tears wiped away. And the Psalms contain all the range of emotions that a Christian experiences. Being betrayed, lamenting, sorrow, grief, joy, answered prayer, Psalms of remembrance of the great deeds that God has done. The whole range of a Christian's experience are contained in the book of Psalms. And so what a great hymnal, we would say, for God's people to dwell on and to pray through and to think through. What do we learn from Psalm 3 as we think about bringing our sorrows and our lament to God? I would like to take this psalm in four parts, each stanza of the psalm with with two verses each. And so our first point arises out of verses 1 and 2, and our first point is the longest point, too, just so you know, in case you're wondering how long this sermon's going to be. Point number one, David expresses his lament to the Lord. David casts his cares upon the Lord. We could head it that way as well. Here we see David's lament. O Lord, how many are my foes. Many are rising against me. Many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. It is our lot in life to experience trouble, and that shouldn't surprise us. This psalm teaches us something of what it is looks like for a believer to bring his trouble to the Lord. We're reminded in Psalm 34, verse 19, many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. And we could add, in a sense, he delivers him out of them all eventually, ultimately, but not always in this life, of course. Or Psalm 138, verse 7, though I walk in the midst of trouble, you preserve my life. Or, I like Job 5, 7, man is born to trouble as the sparks fly upwards. I don't know if you've sat in front of a campfire with, you know, logs sparking. I guess the point there is the sparks tend to fly up. And that's what life is like, we find in the book of Job's. Well, consider David's trouble that is reflected in this psalm. The title of the psalm gives us the context, when he fled from Absalom. So this is a rebellion brought about by his own son. Can you imagine that? 
the anguish and heartache of that. As you read the account in Second Samuel, you realize why, why David, even when his army was victorious, wasn't happy, and Joab had to take him aside and say, you're going to rejoice with your troops and stand in the gate and welcome them or not? Because if not, you might as well send them all off because they're not going to stand with you. David struggled with what was happening and what ultimately happened in the death of his son in this rebellion. But Absalom, we find in Second Samuel chapters 15 and 16, had stolen the hearts of the people from David, largely. He had been kind of acting as a surrogate king, and he forms this conspiracy and raises a secret rebellion until finally he declares it publicly at Hebron, this small town right near Jerusalem. And the trumpet is blown to declare what Absalom is doing. And many of David's friends and advisors and people in the army and so forth go over to Absalom's rebellion. And David has no option but to immediately flee. And Second Samuel describes him going out of Jerusalem, going down through the Kidron Valley, up on the Mount of Olives, weeping as he went, barefoot, with his head covered in sorrow. You just think of David the king leaving Jerusalem, the anointed king of God leaving and going into the Judean wilderness fleeing, not knowing what's going to happen. Is Absalom going to be victorious? Is my life going to be gone? And so he goes along this road, and certainly there's conjecture that what we have in verses 1 and 2 with all these foes rising against him is that that they are saying things against him. And it's interesting that as he goes along the road in Second Samuel 16, he's met by a man named Shimei there along that desert road. And we see, if we look back to Second Samuel 16, that this was a man who was of the household of, of Saul. And, and maybe you know that David succeeded Saul. And as David came, I'm going to start to read here. As David came by the road, Shimei cursed continually. And he threw stones at David and at all the servants of King David. And all the people and all the mighty men were on his right hand and on his left. And Shimei said as he cursed, Get out, get out, you man of blood, you worthless man. The Lord has avenged you. On you all the blood of the house of Saul, in whose place you have reigned. And the Lord has given the kingdom into the hand of your son Absalom. See, your evil is on you, for you are a man of blood. Can't you see how that's reflected in that many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. And by the way, um, David's mighty men say, you know, let us off with his head, this dog. And David says, no. Maybe the Lord has told him to curse me. So I can just imagine, it says that as they went along the road, Shimei, I guess for some time, ran along the road, throwing rocks, pelting these mighty men and David, and cursing him along the way. Well, Shimei is basically saying that God is against David. He's saying that God is judging David and avenging King Saul. Now, it's interesting, Psalm 3, verse 2 is not saying, he's not saying 
There are many saying God cannot help him, but he's, he's saying that God will not help David. When you think of it, a similar thing was said of Jesus Christ when he was going to the cross. Uh, Matthew twenty-seven forty-three. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now if he delights in him. Same kind of thing. Let God deliver him if he's really of the Lord. These are words that are powerful words. And we could say that in some sense, these words can be more powerful than physical weapons. They are words that promote despair and discouragement. Think of it. Think of it this way. Satan is the believer's great enemy, and Scripture portrays him in one of his primary means of attack as being the accuser of the brethren. A number of references in Scripture talk about that. Satan accuses us. He holds before us our sin and says, how can you possibly go to God in prayer? Or he brings sin to mind from the distant past and says to us, how can you ask God for help? You are worthless. You are not deserving. This is the judgment of God. And in a sense, there's a sense in which Satan is correct when we think of what we deserve apart from Christ. But now in Christ, that legal basis of Satan's condemnation has been completely removed. The Christian has been justified by the work of Jesus Christ. And apart from Christ, we would be in utter despair in the face of our own sin. This kind of accusation would cut us to the heart, but we have a Redeemer and we have a covenant God of love who has set his mercy upon us in Jesus Christ. And so because of Jesus Christ, we need to remember Satan's accusations against the believer are groundless. He has no legal basis upon which to come. They are false. And yes, we do still sin, and we grieve that remaining sin, but we have a righteousness from Jesus Christ. And Satan, as it were, may run along the side of our road of life and throw stones down on us and shower our heads with it and curse us, as it were. But as believers, we have to remember that we are hidden with Christ in God. We cannot look at our troubles as evidence of God's condemnation. That is never the case for the believer. But, by the way, it is not only Satan who brings troubling words. Other people can do that as well, as all of us know. David is thinking about what people are saying about him. People who may have at once been his friends. People may say things to our face, especially in conflict, in the heat of the moment. And unfortunately, we say things that we shouldn't say as well. Everyone does at times. They may say to us very hurtful things, things that may be true, things that may be partly true, things that may be false. People can also say things behind our backs. They can gossip about us. Gossip is saying something about someone that is true, but that doesn't need to be said to that person at that time. Now, slander is something that people can do as well. That's saying something that's false or not completely true to others. So there's all kinds of ways. Plus, you and I both know that it can be that the people we love the most can say hard things to us or 
Our children can say something to us that cuts, a, cuts our hearts or uh, a parent or a close friend or a fellow church member. Just think of the people who went over to Absalom's side and that maybe they had served with David for years. It wouldn't have been an easy thing for what David went through, and it's not when Christians go through things as well. But the point of what we're seeing in this first stanza of the psalm is that these verses show us our need, like David did, to express our lament to God, to express our trouble to God. Whatever the source of the trouble might be, whatever the reason for the troubles may be, think of it, Shimei in this cursing and what he said was actually very wrong. Nowhere in the Bible does it say that this trouble of Absalom came on to David because of how he had acted in relationship to King Saul. No, but it does say something else. And David knew it. David knew very well that God had said to him after his sin in the matter of Bathsheba and Uriah, that God was bringing his discipline on David's life in various ways. And God had said to David, the sword will not depart from your household. And what's happening here? The sword. In other words, this terrible rebellion didn't have anything to do with what Shimei said, but it was in one sense very clearly a consequence of his sin with Bathsheba and Uriah and a temporal judgment or discipline of God. But my point is this, even knowing that, here's a, here's a case where David knew that the trouble was caused in part by his own sin. Even knowing that, David doesn't hesitate to bring this burden to God. Do you hear how encouraging that is? That even though David had something to do with the origins of the trouble that's on his life now, It's not like he has to despair. It's not like he has to be discouraged and think that he can't lift up his heart to the Lord. He is able, and God wants him to bring his burden to the Lord. My point in making this application to our lives is this. There are some troubles that come into our lives, and we have had nothing to do with it. There are providences of God. You could pull out of the parking lot after the worship service tonight, and God forbid that this happened, and a speeding car could just take you out. You didn't, I mean, assuming you're driving safely and everything and so forth, it's not your fault. That could happen. There are things like that in this life that we have no control over. Might, you know, you might get some dreaded disease. Simply part of the brokenness of this life. Certainly, even that is under the sovereignty of God. But there are some troubles in our lives that we are partly responsible for. Our past sin, maybe problems due to poor decisions earlier in life or lack of wisdom in things that we've done, or it might be due to how we have handled or mishandled some relationship or something like that. But even when we are responsible or even partly responsible, the encouragement is that God is still sovereign and God desires us to come to him with our trouble and cast our cares upon him. That is the first point here. Learn to be like David in expressing your cares to the Lord. Secondly, verses 3 and 4, David expresses his confidence 
in the Lord. Look at verses 3 and 4. But you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory and the lifter of my head. I cried aloud to the Lord, and he answered me from his holy hill. What changes between verses 2 and 3? There's a real change there, isn't there, in the orientation. And the change is this. David turns from describing and from thinking about, from focusing on his enemies, and instead focuses on his God. We often see that in the Psalms. It's a wonderful transition when that takes place. But you, O Lord, are a shield about me. I like like what Dr. James Boyce says about this verse. He says, When a believer gazes too long at his enemies, the force arrayed against him seems to grow in size until it appears to be overwhelming. But when he turns his thoughts to God, God is seen in his true great stature, and the enemies shrink to manageable proportions. That's what's happening here. We could think of the illustration of the Israelite spies sent into the promised land to spy out the land, the 12 spies. And we all know how in Numbers 13, they come back to the camp with their report. And, of course, 10 of the spies, we know what they say. They saw the Nephilim, these uh, people of, of large size, of great size, who are descendants of Anak and They say, we seem like grasshoppers before them. The ten spies did not have their eyes on the Lord. They had their eyes on the enemies, the giants in the land. But the two spies, Caleb and Joshua, have their eyes on the greatness of God. And they say, their report says, we should go up and take possession of the land, for we can certainly do it. That's the kind of thing we see here. David focusing on the Lord and describing his confidence in his God. But you, O Lord, are are a shield about me. Here's this military metaphor. In the midst of this military endeavor with troops behind him and the need to assemble a force, David is thinking of these military terms, and he describes his God as a shield to protect him. And then he uses the phrase, my glory. Glory, that Old Testament word, connotes weightiness or substance. Here he is. David's kingdom is being taken away from him. We could say David's glory was being taken away from him. He's losing his glory, but he's saying, you are my glory. God is his glory. David has all the glory he needs in God himself. And God is also the one here in verse 3 who's described as the lifter of my head. What a beautiful metaphor that is. Even when When David's head is cast down, you think of him going out of Jerusalem with his head covered in sorrow and some degree of shame and barefooted, mourning, letting Shimei curse him and wondering whether that's from the Lord. Even when he is beset with trouble, even then, God is the one lifting up David's head. In other words, keeping him from despair sustaining him in troubles and hardship and keeping him from discouragement. And then David's confidence is further described in verse 4. I cried aloud to the Lord and he answered me from his holy hill. God's holy hill clearly being a reference to 
uh, the tabernacle where the temple would be soon on Mount Moriah in Jerusalem. Solomon would build it there, God's holy hill. And he's saying, God's presence dwells there. And God heard me from his holy hill. He answered me. He's speaking in the past tense. He has such confidence in God's prayer-hearing ability. God is a prayer-hearing, prayer-answering God, and David is confident in that. Although we know that God hasn't answered David yet when he's writing this psalm, and that God's answer is not always according to our timetable by any means. Dr. Rogers has just preached this sermon on prayer, and we've learned a lot about that. And often the answer does not take the form that we might desire or want. But David's confidence is in the wisdom of God in answering prayer according to our need and good and his glory in his way, in his time. Spurgeon put it this way, We need not fear a frowning world while we rejoice in a prayer-hearing God. I love that. We need not fear a frowning world, and often the world's frowning. There are problems. There are troubles. There's opposition. Christians aren't understood or sympathized with by the world many times, but we rejoice in a prayer-hearing God. What a way to put it. Thirdly, verses 5 and 6, David expresses the fruit of his faith even in the midst of Troubles. I'm calling this the fruit of his faith because you see God sustaining him. Stanza 3 says, I lay down and slept. I woke again for the Lord sustained me. I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. This psalm is traditionally called, uh, termed a morning psalm. Morning, in, in other words, the first part of the day. Morning in that way. Uh, Because of this reference here, he's talking about having slept and being sustained through the night. And so the morning comes and he's still alive. The idea is probably along the lines of, I went to sleep last night not knowing if I would wake up because I might have been um, put to death by Absalom's troops, who he thought could be right after him. And then Psalm 4 is called an evening psalm because it talks about in peace, verse, uh, verse 8 of Psalm 4, In peace I will both lie down and sleep, for you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. So interesting, Psalm 3 and 4 kind of bookends on the night. But here, most possibly, Psalm 3, you get the idea that maybe David wrote this psalm the second day of his flight. He had had one night's sleep. And amazingly, he slept and not only that, but the Lord sustained him. God enabled him to sleep to some degree that night, and the Lord kept his life. Quite an answer to prayer. Of course, this psalm, these verses, are not guaranteeing that Christians will never have sleepless nights. That's not the case by any means. There are sleepless nights. But it is showing us something of the fruit of the confidence David had in his God that God sustained him. And verse 6 further declares David's faith in the midst of fearful circumstances. He says, I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. And you could almost replace the word people with soldiers. You know, he's thinking of soldiers surrounding him and also those who have allied with Absalom. 
It reminds us of Psalm 27, verses 1 and 2, where David says, The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? And then down in verse 3, Though an army encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. Raise your hand if you've had an army encamp against you. I don't think any of you have. That would be a fearful thing. Can you imagine that in that day and age and have an army encamped around you? And, and David resolving not to fear. It is not saying that he had no concern or any fear at all. He's saying that he was resolving to trust the Lord. That's the fruit of confidence in God. It reminds me of Martin Luther. And we just celebrated the 500th anniversary of the, of the 95 theses. And maybe many of you were familiarizing yourself with Luther history In the past months, remember when Luther is called to go to this hearing, this this diet in the city of Worms, and he's given a safe passage to go there. But you have to remember that not long before this, just a few decades before, John Huss was given safe passage as well, and that resulted in him being burned at the stake. So it wasn't very safe after all. So Martin Luther is given safe passage, put quotes around that. And various friends are telling him, Luther, don't go. And by the way, he went. And this is what he said, Even if there should be as many devils in Worms as tiles upon the housetops, still I would enter it. Don't you love that? (laughs) As many devils as there are tiles on the rooftops, and Luther boldly goes. And we know the famous words that he spoke there. By the way, uh, there's a balance between prudence and presumption because when Luther leaves the city of Worms and was given safe passage for a short time, Frederick the Wise, who was an ally of Luther, arranged to have Luther kidnapped. You probably know this story. And Luther was in on that and then spent most of the next year hidden away at the castle of the Wartburg. So it's not like Luther just boldly went everywhere he wanted, thinking that he was invulnerable or anything like that. He was prudent as well. But similar to David, I think, in this sense of saying, I will not be afraid, even though thousands oppose me. And really, Luther faced that in many ways. But the point of application for us under this third point is that as we trust in our God in the midst of the many troubles and the many trials of this life, Our God works in our lives to bring forth this kind of fruit, even in the midst of trouble. It's not a perfect fruit in any of our lives. And we feel our weakness and our remaining sin and our need daily, and sometimes minute by minute, of God's sustaining power. But in the midst of trouble, God gives peace. In the midst of fear and anxiety and turmoil, God gives that to us. And And he gives us increased faith and trust in God in the midst of our fears and concerns. God doesn't, you might change the analogy a bit and say, God doesn't take away the waves of the storms of this life when we're on the sea like the disciples were, but he enables us to look to him in the midst of the waves. And he promises to supernaturally sustain us by his grace. That's what we're seeing in David's life. And we see that in our lives as well. And then finally, our fourth point, verses 7 and 8, David expresses his try to God for deliverance. David expresses his cry, his prayer to God for deliverance. Verse 7, Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God, 
For you strike all my enemies on the cheek. You break the teeth of the wicked. Here's military language again. The psalm has a lot of it. And it reminds us of Numbers 10. Again, the nation of Israel in the wilderness. And if you go back there to Numbers 10 and read about it, you know that when the Israelites broke camp, the cloud of God that dwelt over the ark would move out to guide the nation and move out before them as they started their day's march and would guide them and lead them. And Moses would cry, Arise, O Lord, may your enemies be scattered. May your foes flee before you. It's the same language, arise, O God. David is very specifically asking for God to deliver him from this trial, to deliver him from his enemies as the anointed king of God. He is the king anointed by God. Yes, with troubles, yes, with sin, yes, with now dark things in his past that he has fallen into, but still, God's chosen, the man after God's own heart. And he's crying out to God on the basis of God's covenantal relationship to him. And Absalom, we could say, has joined the host of rebellious kings that are pictured in Psalm, Psalm 2. The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. David was the anointed of God. Absalom has joined the rebellion of the kings of this earth. And David is asking God to defeat his enemies, which God eventually does. And Absalom is defeated and killed, and David is restored to the throne again. It's interesting that the second half of verse 7, for you strike all my enemies on the cheek, you break the teeth, is actually in a past tense. Different translations translate it like here we have it, present tense. Sometimes you even see it, you will strike But it's written, it's spoken by David in the psalm in the past tense to express certainty. Sometimes we see that. Something that hasn't happened yet is so certain because of God's trustworthiness. And then there's this declaration of God's salvation at the end. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing beyond your people. It's this declaration that God is the one who saves And it's true for God's people, whatever happens to them in this life, whether they live or whether they die, they are the Lord's. Whether or not we see the answers that we might long for in this life, the ultimate ultimate salvation of God will come. We have it certainly in Christ. And notice that in verse 8, David goes from his own situation and the first person, like I and me, he goes to applying it to all of God's people. Your blessing be on your people. It's enlarged now for all the people of God. God's people in this earthly life will typically be beset by troubles. But, listen to this, at the same time, they are being blessed by God. Isn't that an amazing, marvelous truth? Maybe you saw in the news the other day that the Golden Lampstand Church in Shaanxi Province, China, was completely blown up and demolished by government officials January 12th. It was in the news. Bob Fu commented on it about the need for 
believers in the West to speak up. By the way, Bob Fu is our featured speaker at our missions conference in a month. And I, I, I read his quote in the news. But this was a church with a membership of 5,000. And they showed this church just blown up, demolished. And it had only been built in 2009. By the way, when it was being built, government officials also beat up the Christians sleeping there to build the church and destroyed the church then as well, even when it was being built. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine reading in the newspaper, Westminster Presbyterian Church blown up by the government? The members are not sure what to do. Can you imagine that? That's what they're facing over there. But however God answers his people's prayers, we know that God's people and the people in the Golden Lampstand Church are being blessed by God, whether they live or whether they die. They are the Lord's. Whether their suffering is great or not, they are being blessed in Jesus Christ by their God. Salvation belongs to the Lord. You see where that psalm has taken us. Whatever our lament, and there are real and deep laments in this life, There are great sorrows and griefs. There are things that never fully heal in this life. Whatever our lament or our trouble, we can say with David, salvation belongs to the Lord. Salvation is of the Lord. That's the greatest one-sentence summary of the gospel. Salvation is of the Lord. It's all of grace. That means from beginning to end, God works in our lives by his grace to save us to bring us to trust in Christ in the first place, to keep us, to continue his good work, to glorify us, to finish the good work in our lives. Salvation is of the Lord. And Romans 8 declares this great salvation. Paul asks, what can separate us from the love of Christ? And then he gives that long list of things. And it reminds me of the hymn that James Montgomery Boyce wrote that we're going to conclude with here. It has to do with nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. That is the blessing of God. As you bring your lament to the Lord, and maybe there are times in your life that you're filled with joy because there are many good things in your life, but all of us will have times of lament. Bring your lament like David brought his lament, like the Psalms bring the lament to God, and trust in him and know that his salvation is certain and sure through Jesus Christ. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for the great goodness of the Lord toward us that never fails. We thank you for your blessing on your people always, whether or not we see it in its full sense or not, whether or not the world is aware of it. We're very grateful, O Lord, that you've given us union with Jesus Christ in his death and resurrection and that nothing can separate us from his love. In his name we pray. Amen.